Uh, we continue on this week with a discussion of the application of salvation. That's been the topic for the last uh, couple of weeks. And uh, last week we were able to cover the topic of effectual calling. And if you remember, we talked about the differences between an external call and an internal or what we would call an effectual call, which is a work of the Holy Spirit when he carries that message of the gospel into the heart of the unbeliever. And what he does is he transforms him or her in a salvific way. That's the effectual call. And we talked about that last week. Today, I want to talk about what happens when a person receives that effectual call of God through the preaching of his word, uh, and at that point is therefore regenerated. He's born again. Now, I've been a part of this church for a good period of time, and uh, I've had the blessing of hearing some of your backgrounds and where you come from and what, kind of, what kinds of churches that some of you have come from in the past. And uh, many of you have come from churches that emphasize things like you know, miracles or miraculous healings. You know, that might have been some of your background um, in some of the churches that you've visited or, or have come from. And we thank God that you know, by God's providence, he's led you to a more word-centered focus um, in church life. And although we as Baptists are often accused of denying works of miracles today, and again, that's just an accusation, especially particular Baptists who have a high view of Scripture, this accusation um, is not entirely true. I've been asked in the past from a Pentecostal friend why particular Baptists do not believe that God can work miracles today. They just assume that, and uh, they've asked me that before. And at that moment, I didn't respond as well as I wished. Uh, I went home wishing I said something better, um, you know, like a good, clever response, but I, you know, I didn't say what I wanted to say. <laughs> but the reality of the matter is that we do believe in miracles, and I would even argue that most you know, other traditions tend to have way too small of a perspective of miracles. And if you observe some of their so-called miracles that many churches today claim to experience, it usually involves health, wealth, and prosperity. Uh, you know, things that have temporal value. Now, in comparison, I want to share with you what might be the biggest miracle in the world. You may have to drive out into areas where you least expect that miracle to happen. You may have to enter into a small, unappealing old church building somewhere in the backwoods or in a small town. But in some of these unnoticed churches, God is performing what I would consider the biggest miracle in the world. Now here's the miracle. The greatest miracle today is the miracle of regeneration. God is grabbing hold of sinners and their hard heart of stone and changing it into a heart of flesh. God is resurrecting the soul of men from dead to alive. That's a miracle. Yet the tragedy of some of the modern churches today is how often this miracle of regeneration is not seen or understood to be as miraculous as it actually is. The miracle of regeneration is greater and more glorious than any other miracle you can fathom. And so again, this is what I'm going to talk about today. And I divided that subject into three points. You'll see it in your handout. Um, you'll see the first point is regeneration as described in Scripture. So we're going to 
go into the Bible, we're going to explore some of the passages and how it describes this concept of regeneration. And point number two is regeneration as understood in history. So we're going to just go back, look at church history, and see how regeneration, that doctrine, has been understood. And then point number three is regeneration as a prerequisite for the kingdom of God. So let's look at point number one. Regeneration as described in Scripture. When we look in the Bible, we see mankind facing a dilemma that goes back as far as Genesis 3. Okay? This dilemma is the bondage of the will making men slaves to sin. Uh, man's will, ever since the fall in the garden, is bound with an inclination, right, an irresistible desire towards self-gratification and sinful passions. And this is true in man's heart. But this is also true in man's thinking, and this is also true in man's deeds. Okay? And even if you're convinced that man is reasonably good, history is sufficient proof. Right? History has proven otherwise. Now, regeneration is the undoing of that bondage. Okay? Regeneration is the work of the Holy Spirit in the soul of human beings, enabling us to actually see our sinfulness, in which otherwise we would have remained blind to the truth about our own depravity. And you'll notice if you talk to a sinner, you know, some would say, yeah, I know I'm a sinner. But um, when, you, when you speak to an unregenerate person, oftentimes the issue is, is that they don't see their own depravity. They don't believe that they're that bad. Um, they don't believe that they're not worthy of the kingdom of God, uh, regardless of what they say. Now, also, the Holy Spirit allows us to behold not only our depravity, but we also behold the beauty of the Savior so that we can truly praise and worship him. Right? So you, you become regenerate, you're born again, and you begin to see how bad you are, but you also see how good Jesus Christ is, how beautiful he is. The, 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 the worth in, in Christ and the crucifixion and, of course, the resurrection. This is all a result of regeneration. Now, when you look up regeneration in Scripture, you notice that it's, it's actually described in different ways. It's not just, you know, that plain um, way that we often define it. You know, regeneration, you're born again, you're saved. There's different ways that the scripture goes about it. We're going to explore some of that. Uh, for example, the Old Testament speaks of this concept of regeneration as circumcising or circumcision um, and softening the sinful and hardened heart. Okay, uh, let's go to Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. I don't have the PowerPoint up there, but turn, turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And it, whoever has it, uh, raise your hand. Thank you, sir. Uh, Robert, go ahead. You can read it. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Thank you. Yeah, so you see there the concept of circumcision in your heart or circumcising your heart. Um, let's look at another passage. Uh, Ezekiel 36, verse 26. Thanks, Rachel. Thank you. Yeah. So uh, this is this is a another example of uh, what it what it means to have your heart circumcised, right? It says there, "I will give you a new heart, 
and a new spirit, and I'll, I'll put it within you, and I'll remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. It's that removal of a hard, hardened heart, a dead heart, and uh, an implant of a good new heart that's actually, actually able to see reality and see uh, themselves for what they truly are, uh, along with uh, recognizing the beauty of, of the gospel. And in these passages, it seems to describe regeneration as a work in the heart, you see? Uh, think for a moment on what your heart does normally. Think about it, you know, every day. What does your heart do? And, and by heart, I don't mean the actual organ, you know, that pumps your blood. I mean, you know, your passions, your will. What does it do on a normal basis? Uh, uh, oftentimes when you're led by your passions, right, they lead you in the wrong direction because they're, they're driven by emotion and feeling. They, they're, they're not concerned all the time or necessarily with objective truth. They're just concerned with uh, how it affects your emotions. Um, and again, your emotions should not be the rule of your life. Your emotions should not be authoritative. Emotions do not care for objectivity. However, in regeneration, God changes your affections and your emotions, uh, and he redirects them towards him, which presupposes that prior to being born again, prior to being regenerate, um, your heart always leaned against God and his will. You were, you know, by nature, you would move in that direction opposite from God. And what God does in regeneration is that he changes that, he turns it around and he points it uh, towards him. Now, even though our hearts are regenerate, right, those of us who are saved, still it remains with indwelling sin that must be put to death, right? It's, it's a regeneration that still needs levels of sanctification, right? You're turned the other direction, but it's not completely submissive towards that direction. And so even now, as a Christian who uh, those of us who are believers have a regenerated heart. Um, it's pointed at the right direction. We're headed towards the right direction, but it's not 100% purified because it's, an, it's a, a progressive uh, kind of sanctification. And of course, we, if you're a believer, we long for that day when that is done away with and our hearts are uh, pure uh, and no spot of sin in them. Now, considering the fact that Romans 1 speaks on how no one is righteous, we've read that before, no one seeks after God, we then read in Psalm 119.47 an expression of a heart that is regenerate. You'll see a complete 180. And as the unbeliever hates the commands of God, a person who is regenerate actually delights in them. And I'll read it, Psalm 119.47, it says, For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. And again, that, that is a miracle for uh, a man who has been corrupted with original sin. Um, his nature and will is corrupt. All of his faculties, mind, soul, body, are tainted with sin. And sin being, by definition, uh, not following and not obeying the commands of God, all of a sudden being regenerated and saying things like, I find my delight in your commandments, that's a, that's a miracle. In Scripture, regeneration is also portrayed as the act of God writing his law on the human heart. See, this is another, another way of, of uh, describing what regeneration is. 
God writing his law in your heart. And you see that in Jeremiah 31, 33. Can someone uh, find that verse? Jeremiah 31, 33. Thanks, brother. You can read it out loud. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Amen. Yeah, so you see that... Um, uh, the, the, the sign of what it means to be born again or regenerate is this uh, law written in our hearts that now we obey. And again, we're, we're not perfect because we are still in sinful flesh, but we obey and we do it and our wills have been free from that bondage of sin and now we can, uh, we can obey to the glory of God. Another description we find in the New Testament uh, regarding regeneration, is this concept of becoming a new creation, becoming a new creature. We see that in 2 Corinthians 5.17. I'll read it. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And, and the way that we are a new creation is that in regeneration we are being brought from death to life. That's what it means to be a new creature. God is taking us out of a life of vanity, uselessness, sin, misery, corruption, and mainly spiritual deadness, and he's making us alive in him. We now become instruments of righteousness. Uh, and it's interesting when, uh, let's say you have an old friend who knew you back in the day when you um, were not regenerate, you know, you weren't living uh, according to uh, the gospel, you weren't converted. They know you back then, and you don't see them for a while, and then you see them again now as a new creation. And they're able to, they're, they're able to tell that something's different about you. Um, you know, you don't desire the same things anymore. You desire to live according to the, the word of God. And again, this is, these are signs of new creation. Uh, and, and we see this sort of thing uh, in Romans 6.13, uh, can, can someone find that and read that? Romans 6.13. If you got it, just raise your hand. Thanks, Robert. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life, mm -hmm. and, your, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Yeah, so you see uh, uh, that part in that verse where it says, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from dead to life. You're a new creature in the fact that you were once dead and now you are made alive. And as a result, right, it says when he makes us alive in him, we now become instruments for righteousness. You know, apart from regeneration, you know, you, 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 you may have thought you were good, but your, your uh, good deeds um, were done hypocritically. They weren't done to the glory of God. Um, and if it wasn't done to the glory of God, it was done for self-glorification, um, as, as, a, as a son of the devil, as, as Jesus would say. But being that you're born again, you're brought from death to life, and now you're instruments of righteousness. In regeneration, there's a real resurrection that's taking place in our souls. And even when we are made alive, we're continually, continuously being sanctified by that same power that made us alive. And God has called us out of darkness and into his light. And we see that in 1 Peter 2, 9, which says, 
But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And finally, uh, regeneration is portrayed as being born again, right? A new birth. And this is, where we, this is where Christianity breaks away from all other religion. Most religions require their members to act and follow its path as they are in that natural state. Right? You join a religion the way you are, you obey their rules and regulations and their laws, and uh, you know, it's assumed that you are uh, you know, achieving some sort of merit so again, there, there is no, in, in most religions, there is no prerequisite for the member of their religion to have a change of nature or to be born again. Yet Christianity uh, requires that you are born again in order for you to uh, live and follow Christ. Now I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say, biblically speaking, that Christi- uh, in Christianity, man experiences an actual change of human nature uh, from how God designed man to be, right? You don't become a a different human, per se. Uh, You still have the same uh, uh, parts, right? But rather, Christians experience a radical change of the governing disposition of their soul, which under the influence of the Holy Spirit gives birth to a new life that moves in a Godward direction. So you're you're still you, in a sense. Uh, You don't stop being you and you become some other person completely. Um, God preserves the identity that he's given you, um, but he radically changes the, uh, the governing disposition of your soul, uh, and he, he points it and changes it in a Godward direction. In other words, the substance of human nature remains the same. Yet we see in Scripture that apart from this new birth, the natural man cannot receive that which is spiritual. So, for example, when you speak to an unbeliever, a person who has not been born again, uh, the person is, is not going to understand the things that are spiritual. Uh, you may tell them, a, you, you may share parables with them, you may try to point them to the things that pertain to uh, the kingdom of God, and they ain't going to get it. Uh, they're not going to understand it. It requires a person to be born from that kingdom, that, that spiritual um, Side And uh, a person, again, who is in their natural state will not understand that which is spiritual. We see that in uh, 1 Corinthians 2.14. Can someone look that one up? Raise your hand if you got it. Uh, did you get it? Yes. I'll let you read it, brother. Yes. Thank you. Again, the... the the natural person, when we talk to them about things that are spiritual, they're, they're just folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they're, they're spiritually discerned. They're spiritually understood. And this is an important thing to remember. Too many Christians today have an overly inclusive Christianity where the lines of believers and unbelievers are so broad or you know, oftentimes they just don't exist. But according to God's word, Christianity is very exclusive. The true church is limited to those who are born again. 
Now, um, I do believe that the invitation is broad, right? We call all men, um, it, it, we, we call it, and we, we call all men with an external call, a presentation of the gospel. We invite them to come in. Um, we desire that they be born again. We, we proclaim it to all men and women with no discrimination. However, only those who are born of the Spirit will truly be members of God's true church. And we see this in John 3, uh, 6 through 7, which says, I'll read it. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And these are Jesus' own words. He says, do not marvel that I say to you, or that I said to you, you must be born again. So we see here in Jesus' own words how he defines the new birth as being born of the Spirit. Uh, now, I want to discuss regeneration and how it's understood historically. So let's look at point number two. Uh, regeneration as understood in history. The, uh, the position that we hold, according to our interpretation of Scripture as it relates to regeneration, this position that we we hold, our understanding of regeneration, was not exactly the position that was held by the early fathers of the church. Now, broadly speaking, uh, it seems that uh, most of the early fathers equated regeneration with baptismal grace, or uh, more commonly called baptismal regeneration. Uh, This is the idea that uh, you're born again in baptism, that the, there is uh, a level of efficacy in the waters of baptism that causes your soul to be regenerate. Now, uh, even in some of the writings of the early fathers, you might notice that the way that they talked about regeneration seemed a lot simpler than the way that we tend to explain it. Uh, regeneration was reduced primarily to the remission or washing away of sins. We talk about regeneration as a change of the will. Um, But, uh, you know, the the way that it was expressed and explained uh, in the early church age was uh, primarily the washing away of sins. And again, this is just broadly speaking. It's it's a lot more complex than that. However, we do see uh, a a reductionist uh, understanding of regeneration explicitly in Pelagius. And, and we know that Pelagia, Pelagianism teaches that man naturally has in himself the ability to pursue God in that natural state. Therefore, the Pelagian understanding of regeneration does not, in my opinion, does not necessarily require a doctrine of new birth. Although, if you were to talk to someone who is uh, Pelagian, they probably wouldn't deny the necessity of the new birth because it's, it's sort of plain in the scriptures. We see Jesus saying you need to be born again, so on and so forth. However, the issue, the differences between what we would hold and, and some of the other um, traditions is just our understanding of regeneration, right? We may agree that one has to be born again, but we, we're not uh, in agreement with what that actually means. Uh, we see, for example in Roman Catholicism, a different interpretation of regeneration. Uh, In the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which is like a pretty fairly recent um, document, like 20th century document, uh, you can see how they define regeneration. 
um, and how it's directly tied to the sacrament of baptism. Uh, In chapter 1, entitled The Sacraments of Christian Initiation, uh, we read in Article 1 of the Sacrament of Baptism. This is the, the Catholic Catechism, okay? It says this, Holy baptism is the basis of the whole Christian life, the gateway to life in the Spirit, and the door which gives access to the other sacraments, which, in fact, they have seven sacraments. Um, Through baptism, we're freed from sin and reborn reborn as sons of God. You see, they they see baptism as as a form of regeneration. We become members of Christ, and are incorporated in the church and made sharers in her mission. Baptism is the sacrament of regeneration through water in the word. And and that's the end of the quote I I took from the Catholic catechism there. And so here we get a clear statement about what the Roman Catholics believe regarding regeneration. It's through baptism. They believe that you're uh, born again or regenerated through baptism. And just to add to that, keep in mind that uh, baptism in the Roman Catholic Church is, is usually infant baptism. Therefore, regeneration in their understanding isn't necessarily a change of the will as we would see it, uh, but rather a cutting off from our connection to Adam or a cleansing from that original sin that we've inherited that, from Adam. And so they would see regeneration in baptism when they baptize that child. What they're doing is they're saying, okay, we're initiating him in the church. He's regenerate because by virtue of this sacrament, um, he's now disconnected from uh, the sinful nature that is inherited in Adam. Uh, again, uh, and, and this is very different from what we would believe. We would, we would see regeneration as a change of the will, um, uh, 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 a uh, a sacrament or a sign, rather, of, of a person who has already received regeneration. That's, that's how we would, we would see it. We don't see that the baptism itself has the efficacy to regenerate the individual, especially us Baptists who would, re, who would uh, baptize uh, according to a profession of faith and not just being born in, in a tradition. Uh, so the baby being baptized in the Catholic Church is, is welcomed as a member of Christ on that basis. Um, now, here's the difference between them and the classic Reformed position. John Calvin, in his Institutes, argues against that idea of baptismal regeneration. Um, even as a paedo-baptist himself, he says, um, he says this, and I, and I quote, Peter also says that baptism also doth now saves. This is John Calvin quoting 1 Peter 3.21. And if you look in the Bible, it actually says uh, in 1 Peter 3.21, baptism also doth now saves. And so you look at that passage in Scripture and say, what, what does that mean? Does that mean that baptism saves? Well, no. And, and he goes on to explain. Calvin says, for he did not mean to uh, intimate that our uh, ablution, I don't know how to pronounce that word, but he's meaning uh, salvation. He, he does not mean that salvation is perfected by water or that water possesses in, possesses in itself virtue of pur- purifying or regenerating and renewing, nor does he mean that it is the cause of salvation, but only that the knowledge and certainty of, of such gifts are perceived in the sacrament. In other words, Calvin 
He did believe in the efficacy of baptism as a means of grace to the elect of God. In other words, it was more than just a symbol to Calvin and to most uh, Reformed theology. It wasn't just a a symbol. Um, There was some real um, nurturing of the soul when a person would be baptized. But by no means did he believe that it had regenerating power in and of itself. And we would hold to the same thing. We know that those, the waters of baptism uh, changes nobody. Uh, not in a salvific way. Uh, this is understood by both Reformed Presbyterians, who in fact still baptize infants, and it's also understood with Reformed Baptists. We both understand that we could never declare a child to be a true member of Christ's invisible church simply on the basis of infant baptism since we know from Scripture that regeneration is a work of the Spirit in the heart of man. That's what it is. Uh, And and we see that even with the thief on the cross who confessed, he believed that he was the Son of God. Uh, And and there we see Jesus reply, you know, today you will be with me in paradise. Um, There there was no need uh, for um, baptism in the sense where it was... uh, essential to the person's regeneration. It was not until the Reformation that a more biblical understanding of regeneration was developed. At first, many of the 17th century Reformed theologians simply equated regeneration with effectual calling and conversion. They sort of bundled regeneration with all, you know, all the other experiences of being born again. But we see later on that the Reformers uh, developed further uh, and understood this, uh, this doctrine of regeneration. And they, they based it off of uh, 1 John 3, 9, and they would see that the seed, which you'll see, I'm going to read this passage, it talks about God's seed, and they would see that as um, a summary of how they understood uh, regeneration. I'm going to read the passage. 1 John 3, 9 says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. What what is that seed that abides in him? Well, uh, the Reformers understood this seed to be the actual Spirit of God. This seed is permanently implanted in man and therefore produces and springs out all the things that flow from it, right? Faith, repentance, and justification. All these things that we are required to obtain in order to be saved, right? The faith, repentance, justification. And, and the reason why it's important that, that um, we look at that verse and we say, okay, the seed of God implanted, that's regeneration. The reason why this is important is because that concept, that idea, that truth emphasizes the fact that regeneration must begin with God, right? As we spoke about last week, salvation cannot begin with man, being that he is corrupt by original sin and is unable to produce saving faith in this natural state. It must begin with God. God first, he has to first elect the individual. It has to be according to his will that you will be saved. Apart from him willing that, You don't have the power nor the will to uh, make yourself born again, regenerate and change your own will and your own desires. You You don't have that ability. 
God has to desire that ability in you. He has to first elect the individual. And you know what he does when he predestines you before the foundation of the world? He grants you the ability to repent and to have faith. Now, you know, I understand maybe some of us have grown up with the, um, the call, that, that, that command that we ought to, you know, repent and trust in Christ. And, and that's true. The problem is that when you say that, when you evangelize and you tell the sinner, repent and, and come to faith, you're telling him something that he can't do because he's dead. Now, it doesn't mean that, that we ought not to proclaim it. We proclaim it trusting that God will um, use those words and carry it by the Holy Spirit and, and effectually change the person's heart by them. But again, the person does not have the ability. It must begin with God's will. God has to elect that person and, and say, this person will come to me by the hearing of the gospel when Will or Pastor Ron preaches the gospel to him in that very day, in that very moment. Again, it must begin with God. God has to elect, and he has to grant that person the ability to repent and have faith. In other words, Reformed orthodoxy, Reformed uh, doctrine would hold to the fact that new birth comes before faith. You actually have to be born again in order for you to have faith. It requires a person to be born again first in order for them to even produce faith and repentance because one who is not born of the Spirit cannot produce such a spiritual act, uh, nor would he desire to ever want to do so anyway. Now, unlike Arminianism, which believes that man has to cooperate with the grace of God, the Reformed view understands that man can't cooperate with his regeneration since he's not only unable to, but he literally has nothing good to offer in contribution to that process. Also, uh, way before the 17th century reformers, it was Augustine who realized the necessity for God to act first in providing the grace needed to make uh, someone trust God and trust in his love and, and, and in the gospel. Uh, and I said this quote before, but it was him, it was Augustine, who uh, said that famous quote, quote uh, Grant what thou commandest, and command what thou dost desire. And this is to say, uh, in other words, you know, a God, first give me the grace to do what you command, and then command what you desire. And it was Augustine's understanding of the necessity of the grace of God to be the first cause and the order of salvation that would then... Uh, spark the development of what we have now, which, which is, I, I would say, a full-orbed understanding of the doctrine of salvation. Um, with that said, uh, I, I want to talk a little bit about the actual experience of regeneration. Think for a moment about the, the stories that you've heard other believers tell you about their experience and uh, in, in when they came to Christ when they were born again. And uh, some of you, I'm sure, have great stories of your experience of being born again. However, I want to mention the fact that there is a difference between regeneration, right, being born again, and conversion. There's a big difference there. I know uh, sometimes we don't notice it, but there is a difference between when you were actually made alive, you're born again, you were regenerated, 
and when you converted. Uh, conversion follows regeneration and is different in some ways. And I'm going to quote from A.A. A. Hodge, who's a Reformed theologian from the 1800s. Check out what he says. He says, Regeneration is God's act. Conversion is ours. Regeneration is the implantation of a gracious principle. Conversion is the exercise of that principle. Regeneration never is consciously known by us. Conversion is thoroughly a process involving our consciousness. Regeneration is a single act, complete in itself and never repeated. Conversion, as the beginning of holy living, is the commencement of a series, constant, endless, and progressive. End quote. So Hodge is making the point that there is a difference between that moment that God makes you spiritually alive and the moment that you find out that God has made you spiritually alive. And this is why there are many people who can share such amazing stories of conversion, while at the same time, there are many who are truly believers but can't seem to pinpoint the very moment of their new birth. I'm one of those guys. <laughs> I, I, I don't know when it, act, when it actually happened. I have many experiences of when I, when I recognize a change in my, in my life. I, I remember times where um, I experienced a release from my idols. I was obsessed with certain things, little things, stupid things, like music and culture and things that I wanted to hold tight to. And that, that when I heard the preaching of the gospel, it threatened my idols. And I remember moments in, in, my, in my walk early, earlier uh, in the beginning of it, where I experienced a release from that, that I know had to be a work of the Spirit in me, because otherwise I would not desire to release the things that I love so passionately. And yet, uh, again, you know, there are some who, who, who can tell you with, with clarity and remember in detail the moments of conversion, and there are some who, you know, they can't pinpoint it right away, but they know and they've seen throughout their lives God doing a work in them. Now, neither experience makes the event any less glorious. When God sets you free, you're free indeed, and, and, we, and we ought to be thankful for that, and, and there should be evidence of that. Nonetheless, regeneration does affect the whole man, not just the inner man. Uh, script, scripture seems to indicate that when you're born again, it consequently affects, his, affects all other faculties. Uh, it affects your mind. Or your intellect. You see in 2 Corinthians 4 where it says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, he has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. So regeneration does affect your thinking. And as we said before, we know that the new birth also affects the will. Philippians 2.13 says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work his good pleasure. And finally, we see that the new birth affects your feelings and your emotions. First uh, Peter 1.8 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. That's, that's a work of your feelings, your emotions. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy. These are uh, feelings, these are expressions 
It says, and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So those are just some ways that regeneration affects the whole man. We can add to that list uh, a love for other Christians, right? When you're born again, you have a love for other Christians. You see that in 1 John 4.20. Regeneration also affects you in that you develop a love for his word. Sometimes you're like, man, I don't know why, but uh, I am hungry to hear from God. And, and you don't go to, you know, so-called prophet. You go straight to the Bible where we can be assured of God's word. Um, and, and we see that idea in Psalm 119.16 where there's this love for the word of God expressed by the psalmist. Let's go to the last point, uh, point number three. Point number three is regeneration as a prerequisite for the kingdom of God. Now in scripture, we see that the kingdom of God is spiritual in nature. Uh, turn with me to Luke 17, 20 through 21. Luke 17, 20 through 21. And if you have it, just raise your hand if you're willing to read it out loud. Thank you, brother. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God was come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there, or behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Thank you. Yeah, I, I like the way the King James Version says, uh, the kingdom of God is within you. And what this passage signifies is that God is expanding his reign through his people. Even in the beginning of time, God dwelt with his people. Remember in, in the garden? Even uh, uh, with Adam and Eve, God was in their midst. But because of sin, God then limited his immediate presence uh, and then we see sort of a, uh, a, a limited presence in um, the sections of the Old Testament where we see God dwelling in the temples. But ever since the victory of the cross of Christ, God is reversing that curse and he's recovering his communion with man. First with the physical temple, and now God is dwelling within man when man is born again, right? When you're born again, the spirit now uh, indwells in you. Uh, man then becomes the temple of the living God. And with that said, we see in Scripture that in order for man to see or partake in the kingdom of God, he must be regenerated. It is a prerequisite for the kingdom of God. We see in John 3, verses 2 to 3, it says, uh, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answers him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And it was as if Jesus ignored the flattering remarks of Nicodemus and said to him, Neither the signs that I perform, nor the signs and wonders that anyone else would perform, nor your approval makes anyone a member of the kingdom of God. He, didn't, he, he doesn't need the approval of a Pharisee or an approval of anyone. Only those who have been born again will see the kingdom of God. And that was Jesus' point. And as you read on, 
you'll see that this concept of new birth was confusing to Nicodemus because, again, it could only be spiritually discerned. Another great passage that speaks on the new birth as a prerequisite of the kingdom of God, and I think this is my favorite uh, passage because I think it, it, uh, it best explains um, the necessity of the new birth uh, in order to see the kingdom. Uh, it's found in Mark 43 through 47. Uh, can someone find that passage and read it? Oh, my bad, dude. Uh, Mark, 9, <laughs> Mark 9, verses 43 to 47. Thank you, Emily. Now, we read this, and you may think, what does this have to do with the kingdom of God? You know, if your eyes cause you to stumble, pluck them out. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. What does that have to do with the kingdom of God? Well, if you understand this passage properly, you'll notice that your hand is never the cause of your sin. Nor has your foot ever convinced you to sin either. I would even go as far as to say that your eyes has never done that either. Either Your hands, your feet, your eyeballs have never been the direct cause of your sin and your stumbling. They may have been used in your expression of that sinful act. For example, your eyes may have been the means by which you may have sinned against the Lord in lust. Right? You place your eyes in the wrong uh, object and you obsess over that object in a lustful way. Um, it, it could be a, a visual exposure to evil, and that be uh, you know, the means in which you sin in your heart. However, we know from James 4, verses 1, that the root of your sinful actions are the passions that are within us. James 4.1 says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? So we see, at least in principle, from this passage, that our sinful actions are not our hands' fault. Right? When you sin, you know, even if you sin with your hand, don't blame your hand. When you sin and your feet is part of that process, don't blame your toes, don't blame your feet, nor your eyeball, their eyeballs. Uh, sinful actions are not our hands' fault, nor our feet's fault, nor our eyeballs' fault, but they are the fault of ourselves and our passions, which is another, another way of saying that it's, it's, it's uh, generated from your heart. Now, with that in mind, what then is Jesus really saying in Matthew 9? He is essentially saying that whatever causes us to sin is worth removing than to go to eternal hell in punishment, right? Whatever it is that's causing you to sin, remove it. 
yet we know that it is our heart that causes us to sin. Therefore, we have to remove our heart. We need a new heart. This is what regeneration is. It is God removing the heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh, as it says in Ezekiel 26, verse 36. And Jesus does not hesitate to state that the removal of such a body part, and in this case, we're talking about the heart, is a prerequisite to the kingdom of God. If you, don't have, if you, if you haven't removed your heart, which is in fact causing you to sin, you will not see the kingdom of God. Because it's better for you to enter the kingdom of God than to be thrown uh, into hell with that old heart. Uh, and in regeneration, God takes away that heart that is uh, bound to sin and hard against God, and he gives you a new one. And he gives you that new heart if you trust in, in him, if you trust in his work. Uh, and he'll cause you to repent, and he'll give you the faith that is required. Uh, in conclusion, we've discussed right the basis for the doctrine of regeneration and all its different um, ways that it's described in Scripture. We've discussed the history of the doctrine of, uh, of regeneration, uh, and we've, we've compared them to different traditions uh, in the past. Uh, and then uh, finally, we compared them to what we would see to be the biblical reformed position. And uh, finally, we, we just discussed uh, regeneration as a prerequisite to the entrance of the kingdom of God. And my hope is that our understanding of this doctrine would be applied to how we understand human nature and the utter dependency that man has upon God, even when it comes to salvation. Uh, next week, we'll continue the study uh, as we talk about this topic of conversion. And, and like I mentioned earlier, there is a difference between regeneration and conversion. And uh, Lord willing, we'll get to that next week. Uh, any questions or comments? Yeah, please. My name is Hunter Bell, by the way, from Nice, thank you. You said that uh, God calls or chooses the one they're going to say. That's right. Foundation of the world, yes. Now, what happens to the ones that don't believe? Yes. Yeah, uh, that's a great question. That, that's a question about whether or not God chooses the, uh, the reprobate. And being sensitive of many people's feelings doesn't help anyone. So um, to be sort of frank, this idea that God chooses some for salvation and that he has nothing to do with the reprobate heading towards hell is... is, is uh, what I like to say, a Christian who doesn't have good mathematical skills. Uh, he doesn't understand that what it means for God to choose some also means, whether directly or indirectly, that God has also predestined before the foundation that some will receive uh, the justice that they deserve. And so um, what helps this doctrine to be more clear is to begin with the fact that all men deserve hell. And when God chooses some, uh, what he's actually doing is he is doing something that not even the elect or those who are saved deserve. And so uh, it's a gracious act either way. If God gets involved with, uh, with the human race who by themselves are headed towards hell, God intervening is an act of grace. And those who are headed to hell, God is uh, 
appropriately and justly giving them what they deserve. And so, but what I wanted to stress is that God is not uh, saving some and the ones that are headed to hell, he's not looking at them and saying, oh man, I missed them, I forgot to elect them, or I didn't give them what they deserve. No, they deserve hell, but God is well aware that they're going to hell. Uh, and he's very much uh, well aware that it depends on his decision on whom he chooses and whom he goes to hell. Now, uh, because of the sake of t- for the sake of time, uh, I-, I know it's, it-, it can be a profound uh, doctrine. It can be something that can be a bit complicated, and it usually follows up with a lot of questions. So, what I would suggest is uh, afterward, if you want to talk, we can probably get more deeper than than what we're doing here, but. Excellent question, because I think it relates, uh, it relates to the sovereignty of God in, in, uh, in relation to, you know, justice and things of that nature. Because I, I, I heard that Joe McCarthy, you know, he is reformer. Yes, absolutely. And somebody asked that question. Uh-huh. And he said, well, uh, yeah, God chooses the one in the world who's going to be saved. That's right. And he said, what about the ones that will be saved? And he asked, he said, well, look. That's right. I mean, it's right there, because they choose it for, for their wrath, and they are created for destruction. And, about, and I, I looked at this word. Yeah. About, the word here is katakiso. Katakiso for this Yes. before the foundation That's right. Yeah, amen. He's, he's very much involved even with the reprobate. And we see that in Romans 9, like you said. Uh, it, it, it's, the, it, it's true. Um, yeah, great point. Yeah, thank you for uh, thank you for posing that question. Um, we're out of time. No more questions, y'all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, O Lord, for just your amazing grace. Uh, we thank you that you have once again uh, given men like us wisdom and knowledge pertaining to this doctrine of regeneration that has been carried on from men of the past in church history. And Father, we confess that it is you who has enabled us to ever respond to your call. And we are uh, eternally grateful that we have. And we thank you. Uh, We recognize that this is a work of your grace and not of our own will. And so we thank you and we ask that our worship today would express our gratitude for the grace that you've given to us in regeneration. And Father, we ask that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks, y'all.